Hello and welcome to Chats, a television podcast, season seven, Prisoner Chats. My name is Magellan, and they are a born survivor. I am a born killer. We were made for each other. It's Alan. Hey, 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 hey. Turns out that Chats has been a, a game of cat and mouse this whole time, and uh, this is the one where I'm finally going to get you. <laughs> you're, you're the Tom to my Jerry. You're the uh, Wily Coyote to my Woodpecker. Let's call the whole thing off. Ba-da-bow. What's the song I was actually thinking of? Um, we go together. Let's call the whole thing off. <laughs> That's the, yeah. that's the vibe. Yeah. Well, hello, and hello, Magellan, and hello to the listener, and hello to you. <laughs> Who's my, the you? You covered everybody. Like you talking my, to Patty McGee yeah, up in heaven? Yeah, my constituents. Uh-huh. <laughs> you're his representative here on Earth. Absolutely. His daughter, she's doing her best. Good for her. But Good me, her. I'm the I'm the real Patty McGee. Yeah, he speaks to you at night. He whispers in your ear. What gives us the right to call these showrunners by like cute nicknames? We don't know them. We're not He's friends dead. with them. He's, He's dead. What's he gonna do? Ah! What's he gonna say? He's gonna hit it's us. It's affectionate. With... It's affectionate. I think if I was, if my name was Patrick McGowan and somebody called me Patty McGee, I would like it. I would think it was cute. Ah, uh, he's gonna hit. He's gonna run into us with his ice station zebra if we keep talking sass about him, <laughs> talking milky sass. Uh, well, everybody, this is a show where we watch The Prisoner two episodes a week, and uh, this week we watched episodes fifteen and sixteen of The Prisoner. First, we watched The Girl Who Was Death. It was written by Terrence Feely, directed by David Tomblin. It originally aired on January eighteenth, nineteen sixty eight. And Alan, what took place in The Girl Who Was Death? You know, I'm really glad you asked that because I want to tell you. In this episode, number six avoids the assassination attempts of a beautiful woman while foiling the plots of her megalomaniac megalomaniac father. <laughs> He's megalomaniacal, though, for sure. Yeah. That word has too many syllables for what it means. Yeah, it's almost as if someone who was a megalomaniac created it yeah <laughs> to yeah. have an appropriately um ostentatious adjective for themselves precisely yeah and yeah. uh this is an ostentatious episode if i ever saw one it's um it's really fascinating to me that where we are at with the prisoner because you know we've watched spy episodes we've watched one-off weird funny episodes we've mm-hmm. seen scenes that had nothing to do with anything and while this episode, I think, did feel really cohesive and of its like the, it's the sum of its parts, it's still just so strange that they made this yeah. decision, and it kind of puts into question like what standards were in 1967 with like what do we do in the like back end of our season? Like they ha- we still have this episode order and we have to produce something. So, hey Dave, you got any unused scripts? And Dave's like, yeah, we have a old Danger Man scripts. Yeah, when I read that, so if people don't know, The Girl Who Was Death um, is essentially this this vignette um, where Patty McGee's character, number six, is back in London for some reason, and he's being chased around and, and almost killed by this woman who calls herself Death. Um, and she's, like, dressed in all white, and she has tipped uh, eyebrows, and it's a whole thing. Um, and she's sort of, like seductive but also trying to kill him kind of thing anyway 
Uh, and it's got nothing to do with the prisoner except for the very end where he <laughs> closes the storybook and he's reading it to a bunch of kids. And he's like, and that's the story of how I saved London from a crazy lady. How I met your mother. <laughs> right. Um, and yeah, when I read that that trivia that it was just a script, it was uh, a two-parter that they had sitting around from Danger Man from Patty McGee's old show. And they just used it here. I had the same reaction of why, <laughs> why, why are you doing that? I truly think it's a case where they just had, they had to fill episodes because yeah. it sounds like the prisoner was a show with like a singular thesis and idea that then had to fit into 17 eps mm-hmm. and they just kind of threw scripts at the wall, which I think is fun. It's like, you know, this episode's really creative mm-hmm. and extremely fast and goes a lot of places. I think there's like, probably 20 or so scene changes within these 40 or five minutes. Yeah. Um, and it does tie back into the show at the end, but like, again, when you're trying to, especially like as a TV podcast, trying to find what is the thesis of the show? What is the show about? And you get an episode that just throws something in the face of that. Like, ah, oh, and this, this one is in a storybook. It's weird and fictional too bad. It just makes that, it makes our job a little bit uh, trickier, uh, but I respect it for that. Um, and again, yeah. I think for what it's trying to do as this sort of light send up of spy fiction and like spy movies, specifically like James Bond, it succeeds. It's It does what it's trying to do. It's just weird that it's in this show that we've otherwise thought of as like very um, singular in a different way. Yeah, I um, I definitely was more entertained by this episode than I was by the the last two, which were also strange departures from what the prisoner is. Um, I definitely liked it a lot more than living in harmony, for example, but yeah, it just didn't, it didn't feel like the prisoner um, because it is this, this light tongue in cheek thing. And we've talked a lot about how the prisoner is a funny show. Yeah. And does have subversive qualities and does have, um, you know, times where it's doing social satire, but it's, it's never really done. Like it's never really done parody. And the girl who was death is straight up a parody episode. Um, it just doesn't jive with the rest of the show to me. And so the whole time I was watching it, it was like, okay, this is fun. And I, I, I would watch this show (laughs) where, uh, the thing is that Patty McGee is constantly chased around by a beautiful woman who's trying to kill him. Yeah. I would, I would watch that show. And like bad uh, scientists who are trying to blow up London. Yeah, I would have fun if that was, if this, it, this is kind of like, you know, the Patrick McGoo and James Bond movie that we never got. Yeah, yep. <laughs> in a go. way, and in that context, it's it's fun and. It would be fun to have like seen this and be like, whoa, did you have you ever seen the original James Bond where they only did one movie? Uh, it's called The Girl Who Was Death. And he's the he's my favorite James Bond. Yeah. One, uh, one person is like obnoxiously <laughs> obsessed with this one and is like, this is the only good. Yeah. This is the real James Bond. It's based on the books. Right. This one, that's that context is fun to me. But um, again, you know, I'm coming to the prisoner to have this like allegorical literary experience and this episode doesn't serve that in any way and 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 you know pretty early on i would say that it's parody because 
we're like playing cricket, I guess. We're just in a cricket game. And we kind of get like a cold open where the man who's like throwing the cricket ball, get, he throws it uh, a little far and then can't, tries to grab it from some bushes and it's replaced with an explosive one. And when he throws it, it blows up in the guy's face and he dies. Uh, and you're like, oh my God, there's like a murder plot. And now Six is getting a disguise and he's walking down the street and there's a guy walk, like shining some shoes, except the guy's actually a spy man and the brush that he's using to shine the shoes is a telephone and he's like your mission is to do the, put on the disguise and find out who killed the guy and it's like what <laughs> i'm <laughs> i am literally watching like q assign james bond his task and he has yeah. a femme fatale and he's gonna have all of his gadgets and crap like that um he it's has, really like weird. a whole bit where he's dressed up like sherlock holmes and goes boxing and yeah the amount of the amount of disguise changes in this episode is good uh uh-huh. <laughs> it's very sad. It's very rewarding to watch. We we talk about how much we love Patty McGee's like facial hair uh, evolution, and for him to go full uh, old school uh, Sherlock Holmes mutton chops is very very rewarding. Yeah, I I really enjoyed that. He goes into the record store towards the beginning to get his uh, his assignment and is listening listening to the record, but like talking to it also. Right. Um, First of all, the song that's being played in the music shop is incredible. <laughs> um, it's like this, I don't know, it's like this slapping, jazzy, rock and roll kind of, it was really good. Um, way out of the normal zone of prisoner music, but um, it was just 60s as hell and groovy and I loved it. Um, but when he's talking to the record, the record's like, you're going to wear this standard disguise. And then, yeah, it, it like smash cuts to him and his mutton chops <laughs> playing cricket. <laughs> it's like this is the standard disguise, right? That's just it. that. That's like I'm here doing business. That's my business disguise. Yeah, I, I always on every mission I go on, I slap on these these glue on mutton chops and, Except, and put on my white uh, my white sweater. And that's ideal cricket attire, really, because he goes back to the game and now he's in the cricket game. Are you? Do you know anything about cricket? It's kind of a weird game. No, I know there are wickets. That's basically, and they can be sticky. Yeah, and you don't want that. No, I don't think you want that. At least if you're on that team. And if someone bowls, that's yep. how you pitch as you bowl? Correct. It's basically like a, a different rule set of baseball. Like right. there is still, and like a different tool set. Um, but it's a lot slower, which is bananas when people think about like the biggest complaint with baseball is that it's too slow. Cricket yeah. is like much slower, but the idea is that it's like your whole afternoon, like people in India or people in the UK play cricket and it's just like, oh, the tournament lasts days because every game is too long. Um, I think cricket's a lot of fun and it's another weird like this show really likes to start its episodes centered around games between this and Checkmate, I feel like. We're getting a lot of like people just play things. People like, what do you do with your time when you're on yeah, the village? There's something about this sort of um, skewering of like privileged leisure activities. Uh, yeah, we just assassinate each other and play cricket and do check chess, chess all the time. Yeah, I I wa- I was on Twitter and I saw a clip of a of a baseball. It was like somebody tweeted like this play from. The 1993 season took the Phillies. I don't know if they're baseball or not, but it's like from like maybe they'll be good to like this will be the best season ever. And it was a clip of a guy getting a grand slam. Oh, which is cool. Yeah. But 
it was really boring. It's just like, yeah, he hit it real far. Yeah, that's, that's well, it. The context of that matters a lot more, but also the like strategy of setting up a grand slam takes a ton of work, and that's more what's like impressive. But yeah, just watching it, you're like, okay, they hit the ball really hard. <laughs> cool. Yeah, it went. It went far. That's it went cool. so far. And I, li- I don't know. It's I'm not a sports guy, but as far as sports go, I like when baseball is on. Yeah. Uh, Baseball's a good, good but it can be a good spectator sport if you have the right crowd, I think. Uh, I'm more of a basketball and soccer viewer. Um, I can appreciate those a lot more, just like getting into the, the nitty gritty of like, what's what's this person doing well? Um, right. I remember like, speaking of really slow sports, back in, it was like six years ago or something, I got really into Formula One racing uh, one summer. And I like, wa- I like, remember that. I got up early on Sundays to go on like NBC sports and watch the F1 races. And I was like listening to a podcast about it and everything. And I was like, it was fun. It's nice to like have a little sport that you don't know anyone that watches it. But I think since then F1 has like expanded and like the people who are going to get into it are into it. It's just, it's not like, at least in the States, it's not like expanding that much more, but that like slow methodical, really rewarding in the micro and in the macro, like sport of racing, I think is a lot of fun. Um, hmm. did you know while we're talking about sports that, What's that not NASCAR, but IndyCar, which is similar sort of like an independent NASCAR, uh, they're doing like virtual tournaments right now. Like hmm. they're doing their usual season, but they're doing it through like the NASCAR video game on PC. So all of the racers, like Whoa. some of, some of them dress up, some of them don't. And they all have like racing chairs and steering wheels with like force feedback and, it's like filmed and commentated on like it's a, it's happening live. And there's, wow, that's interesting. I recommend people look into it because there's a lot of wacky controversy about like the safety stuff has gotten really messed up and people are playing a lot more uh, risky because they're like, this isn't real. So I can like nudge other people's yeah, cars like crashing into each other. <laughs> yeah, yes, absolutely. And it's like causing that's a lot of problems. Tough. Cause they're like, how can we take this seriously if we're not going to play it? Like it's real. It's a whole thing. Um, but yeah, to get back to the prisoner, um, Six throws the ball really far away and, and it explodes and he um, escapes. And basically the rest of the episode, once he has his mission, is him just like receiving clues and going places. And this mm-hmm. happens like over and over. Like I couldn't even take a note on each one because they're so fast. And just so arbitrary, right? Like oh, yes. one yeah. thing is like go to the sauna and then he gets in the bath thing and then she tries to lock him in with the umbrella then he busts out and then there's a note that's like go box or whatever and he goes in boxes and then it's like go to the secret town and he goes and there's just no rhyme or reason to it it's it's uh yeah it's it's just follow this okay now go here okay go here all right now i'm trying to kill you now i'm chasing you in a car and i'm trying to kill you again and you're still alive and now i'm trying to kill you in a sort of trap house (laughs) <laughs> the word because you're my trap queen the word that i kept coming back to in my notes with these was cartoonish uh there's yeah the very yeah, first definitely. one the very first one is she tells him to go to his favorite bar and he goes to the bartender whose name is he's like doris give me the usual and he like gets a drink it's like a guinness i guess probably it's a dark black stout and as he's drinking it it says on the bottom of the thing it says you have and he's like hmm and he drinks faster and it says just and he drinks faster and it says bin and he finishes the whole drink and it says poisoned and i was the comedic timing of that was so good yeah because he's just chugging 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 and then it says poison he's like 
fuck. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and she's like, do you want another one? And he's like, one of those is quite enough or something. Like yeah, that. yep. And then he orders like one of everything and she just like starts giving, he just like name, throws out like brand names. She's giving him all this alcohol. And again, I talked about this last week, how the prisoner like doesn't have to oh, show us. Oh, I get it now. Yeah, I didn't get that he was doing that to throw up the poison. Right. Well, that's the thing is, well, so uh, I might you might be refuting my point here, which is that the show works because it doesn't need to show us him throwing up, but maybe they did need to so that it was more clear that that was why he ordered all the drinks. I'm I missed the part where it said on the glass you've been poisoned. Yeah. Um yeah. so it says that and then he's like, "Okay," and he orders everything, goes to the bathroom, and then we cut to after he's thrown up because again, we don't need to like make Patty McGee fake vomit. Yeah. And he's like, ah, much better. And he gets out. And um, and then we're in the sauna. And then, the, yeah, the whole thing with the sauna is, like, hilarious. Like, a weird... He's in, like, a spacesuit, kind of. It's like a personal sauna. So he just kind of locks himself into a metal container. And she traps him in there. And he gets out. And it says on the side of a thingy, uh, go to Barney's boxing booth front row. Who would be a goldfish? Which I don't think means... I literally don't think it means anything. I think it means nothing, perhaps. The prisoner has taught me that sometimes uh, a secret message is just a secret message. It's not all <laughs> themes. Uh, and then he goes to this boxing arena, which is very... I like how run down it was. It looked like a rec center or something with a bunch of rich people cheering on these different uh, boxers. Like Killer Kraminski, who number six goes on to fight. And this lady taps on the back and it's like, good luck, young man. And she looks like a cartoon Halloween witch. And she's the woman who is death. I guess that makes more sense that she's wearing black now. Uh, and you mentioned that this has nothing on uh, 2009 Sherlock Holmes boxing scene. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah, it wishes it was that scene. It's very it's very goofy. Uh, yeah. I think the like hand-to-hand combat stuff in this show always looks ridiculous but i like it a lot and uh amongst all the fighting kerminski's like go to the tunnel of love and it beats the crap out of him and knocks him out we're just continuing to fly through we go to the tunnel of love nothing's in there there's like an exploding message there's a bunch of creepy stuff at an amusement park she crashes his roller coaster uh he's chasing her there's a guy who threatens him none of this matt this is all just nonsense um but there is a part this is where i actually started to suspect that we were in a fictional world um he's chasing her and she's like telling him on the microphone like ah you would make a beautiful corpse which is fun and then she like spins her hand and the camera spins with her and i'm realizing in hindsight how funny it is that i wrote she twists the camera and then in my next sub note i wrote is this episode gonna have a twist (laughs) (laughs) feeling obvious in hindsight of course it is um, it's just kind of like fun camera stuff, I guess, like playing with cinematography. And yeah, he gets to the, the mysterious town. She says, my name is Death, which I was like, either we're doing the seventh seal thing and she's literally Death and it's a metaphor or she's just being weird, which I think is kind of is true. Ultimately, uh, he like stops a fixed gun emplacement. There's a bunch of obstacle course crap. This is the stuff where I was like, this feels like like when star trek got the animated series and they got to be a lot weirder with like effects and aliens yeah. uh this is like if the prisoner got to be a cartoon they would do episodes like this for sure definitely. where number six is just like narrowly escaping bombs and is in a room full of candles and she's like all of the wax is nitroglycerin and if you blow it out they blow up and if you leave them they'll blow up <laughs> <laughs> awesome and then yeah. she puts on a jet like this is just fully goof goof world. She's putting on like a military uniform and shooting him with a machine gun. She looks great here. 
it's a fantastic outfit yeah the bismarck helmet's pretty cool it's a good touch um and we then he ends up in a weird bunker and then this is where the plot arrives and basically there's like a bunch of people dressed as like napoleon and napoleonic characters like french soldiers Mm -hmm. uh we find out that she's working with her father and he talks about his wife josephine he's like we're gonna defeat the british uh he six punches a bunch of men who all again act like freaking cartoon characters and are like huh where's the guy (gasps) and then he like beats them up like he's playing a stealth video game (laughs) like every time someone's like where's (laughs) the guy (gasps) what's that noise and he (laughs) beats them up takes their outfit yeah i i I made the note that this feels more like a video game than it does like a show this episode right the amount of guards and goons and like big gun explosions and stuff yeah it's very this is a really fun indie spy sort of joke video game yeah yeah and then your character is just like a silent protagonist who's trying to get through it yeah um and then yeah when it goes it goes full dumb james bond with the whole like this dad who sounds like stewie griffin i noted he kind of has that like uh-huh. we must defeat him <laughs> i can't even do it properly but it's just a very good like, specific yeah, type of like, that i love he's just like napoleon and he's like we're gonna take over london i'm gonna call trafalgar square napoleon square or whatever yeah 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 I'm and i'll give each of my ben, different men a different napoleon or something he's like do you like Stupid. sports and one of his guys like yeah he's like do you want wimbledon he's like yeah yeah he's like you can have wimbledon <laughs> <laughs> so dumb and um yeah six uh escapes on a boat and then the guy, the the lady and the man try and throw grenades at him, but they're like World War II grenades. So the top doesn't have the explosion in it. The bottom does. And they throw the tops. It's so dumb that they throw the tops at him and they have the bottom and they blow them to themselves up. Yeah. And he's like, that was a fun story. And he closes the book and we realize um, The Prisoner, I think, is a show that really rewards you for paying attention, uh, even in its weirder episodes, because mm-hmm. interesting interspersed between all of these like weird scenes is somebody presumably number six we learn later it is like flipping through a picture book that like corresponds to all the different scenes like there's a tunnel of love shot and a lighthouse and everything Uh, and he closes the book and there's like a bunch of kids i've never even seen kids in the village before but now there's like five year olds and they're like read me a number one read me another one why do they know him why are they letting him read to them where are their parents? These are not questions worth asking. And then um, number two is watching, and number two is being played by the guy who's the dad, of yep. course, and his assistant is the girl who was death, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, and number two's all upset that his plan didn't work. What was his plan? <laughs> that Six would say, okay, I'll tell you a story, kids. I'll tell you the story about the time I resigned or something. Like, is that what he expected? So I was a spy for this many years. And here's why. Uh, like, what? Man. And and uh, the woman who's with him is like, it was worth a try, number two. <laughs> <laughs> was it? What did it you try? Work. Yeah. Uh, and then it ends with number six looking into the camera that they're watching him through and saying uh good night children everywhere and then leaving because he's a, a badass cool yeah yes. number six is cool is the thing and i could watch patty mcgoogie uh like punch his way through a bunch of foreign guards uh-huh. any day of the week it does really feel like the show has a mandate that every every x number of episodes has to have a like big fight scene like that because mm-hmm. it kind of felt out of 
care not out of character but just like why like now okay it really does feel like and now is the moment where we start punching men and we do a bunch of that and then we go back to having a plot but it's fun and i think again that like the stuff that you like that i like about the as the vibe of the prisoner like the outfits and the music and all that stuff it's all here it's just Mm -hmm. it's couched in a really strange out of character episode for the series yeah yeah it just doesn't it doesn't need to be here Mm -hmm. you know i um so there are a few i think there are kind of a few things uh a few ways to interpret this or think about like what the purpose of this episode is uh so first of all i i want to talk about how um i was on the wikipedia page for the list of prisoner episodes Mm -hmm. and it shows you all the different ways that the episodes have been like ordered uh by major people or 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 um groups or whatever and one of them was there was this guy named scott appel who uh was like a tv critic in in california and he for this like uh this airing in the in the 80s of the prisoner on a pbs station in in san jose Mm -hmm. he recorded these intros and outros for every episode where he did like his own analysis of the episodes and he also did his own ordering of the episodes and the av club reviews actually follow his order of uh of prisoner episodes um all of all of the videos are really interesting, and I'm gonna watch more of them and, and come back with any other insights I get from them. But um, his for this one is particularly charming because the whole thing is in rhyming verse. Ooh. Um, yeah, and there are a few things that I gleaned from that. The first is that he's arguing that, uh, or he's saying that maybe part of the reason that they shot this was because they were towards the end of their production order and they couldn't afford to go back to where they had shot uh the other episodes that were like on the island yeah they're and just filming so, around the uk instead yes yeah, so they had to film around the uk because their budget was thing out so hmm. that that's potentially what's going on here partly yeah. um he makes the argument that this is a really important uh palate cleanser between dark and heavy episodes because the second episode that we're going to be talking about is like completely unnerving and unraveling. Mm-hmm. And in his order, the one right before this is hammer into Anvil. So it makes sense that <laughs> uh, there should be a kind of like breath of, of air between the two. I, um, I agree with that. It's sort of a right before yeah. the final act. Like let's do one more fun one. Yeah. So tonally, I think it makes sense, but it doesn't, because it's a story, like, yeah, it doesn't build the world in any meaningful way. Um, But the part that I sort of missed that I think is um, important is he says at the end, when they're spying on Patty McGee, number two turns off the camera, and then somehow it's, it's number six who turns the camera back on to say goodnight to them. Oh, and so, so he like knows how to use the cameras. Yeah, so that indicates that um, number six is gaining more and more control, not only of like the psychology of the village, but of just the workings, the technological workings of it too. 
Um, and so that's a piece of evidence to say that number six is, is becoming more powerful within this place. And I, I totally miss that. So I think that that's interesting. He's, he's getting, yeah, he's getting wiser. And at some point, like once you have control, once you have the ability to like affect that, what is left in terms of like territory we haven't, uh, seen, um, I'm actually rewatching that last part and there's no evidence that he turned it, it, it does turn back on. So again, there like is the implication that someone had to turn it back on and that must've been mm-hmm. him, but there's no, like, you don't see him do it. So I think that's, yeah, it's, it's, I think Scott Appel is reading or interpreting that he yeah. did it somehow, which that's that's the kind of critical analysis that i like to see you know yeah and then him and the av club review both basically say like that moment where he says good night children everywhere is um the av club says uh it's the final nail in the coffin of the village's plans six was uh enraged by their interference he's been unsettled by them sometimes terrified always resistant but now he barely considers them a threat um, right. He's they're been dangerous, of course, but so are toddlers if they're holding the wrong kind of scissors. The village has no choice but to play its final card, come good or come ill. Um, by hook or so, by crook. By hook or by crook, right. So that's sort of what drives them to like, okay, now we got to do the last thing. Hell yeah. Yeah. It's very exciting. I always love the moment before the last arc of a TV series where they're like, uh, okay, the plot's here. And you're like, oh man, the plot is here. And that's just very... <laughs> yeah, why weren't we doing this before? Yeah, that's was, cool. Yeah. I think we're just really used to shows like steadily building plot to a conclusion. Mm-hmm. And for this whole idea of like, and then the plot arrives, is, is it's hard to square for us. But that's just the way TV used to be. You know, you just tuned in right. and you were like, what's the prisoner? Oh, it's about this guy. And like, none of these episodes have to connect. None of them relate. That's why I think like, as we talk more about the conclusion and episode order and like, what's the value of this episode order versus another one, mm-hmm. it's, it's partly a, a consideration of like, could you like be a random person who tunes into whatever network this is on in your country and be like, oh, the prisoner's on. I'll watch it with my family or you did watch it over dinner or something. Right. And like get it or are you going to be like oh, i didn't watch the previous couple because that there was no precedent for that in the 60s i don't think yeah except like i don't even know how big soap operas were in the 60s if there were any that's a another interesting thing to think about for research right well right, right, right. fun stuff magellan do you have any stray notes about the girl who was deaf before we take it to the close to so take, um, take to the half rather yeah i do there there are a few fun puns in this one um and I didn't write all of the ones down that I enjoyed, but uh, my favorite <laughs> was my favorite comedy moment was when he's tied to the inside of the lighthouse and um, Napoleon is saying the sentence, the lighthouse itself is the rocket. And yeah. number six finishes the sentence with is him. the rocket. Yeah. <laughs> we he's know. Like, oh, cool. This is stupid. <laughs> and then I really liked it when, um, when the woman who was death is is leaving, she says, when the rocket reaches London, you'll be the first to know. Won't that be exciting? And then number six says, I'll simply go to pieces. <laughs> <laughs> I really thought that was funny. Um, I also liked when the kids are like, will you come read us a story tomorrow? And he says, I'll come tomorrow. I don't think I have any other important appointments. <laughs> it's like, what am I doing? I'm just living on this island. Uh, yeah, let me check my Rolodex. I got no one else looking for me. My time. Yeah. 
Oh, I also liked when Six is sneaking around and the one Napoleon guard guy is singing Danny Boy. And then Six knocks him out and then keeps singing the song as he's like putting the dude's clothes on. There's a sort of momentum to all of that fighting stuff where he's like, because he's trying to also like not make anybody else outside of the room worry. So he's like, okay, I guess kind of partly like I'll knock this guy out and I'll continue the song. So there's no break in the action. Like I like that, that the pace of all of that a lot. Yeah, me too. It's great stuff, man. Um, yeah, so I think again, overall, interesting episode, a lot of fun, um, but just not what I expected out of the prisoner. Mm-hmm. And uh, my expectations were further pushed to the brink uh, in our second episode that we watched this week, which we will discuss after this brief musical break. back to prisoner chats it's still alna magellan we're still here we're still talking about the prisoner specifically we're here to talk about once upon a time which is episode 16 in our watch order and it was written and directed by patrick mcguin this episode aired january 25th 1968 and i'm asking you now in front of in the audience of my peers magellan what happened in once upon a time in this episode Number two subjects number six to a desperate last-ditch effort to subdue him. Degree absolute. An ordeal that will not end until it breaks one of them. Alan, what do you think? Is it just good? You ever... Okay, have you ever... mm, What's the angle here, bro? I loved this episode, but it's Mm -hmm. so much that I kind of like wouldn't recommend... It's like... It's great! It's great. They did Shakespeare. We're moving some plot forward. We got amazing acting. We have, as like a podcastable episode, like the best, the most fascinating trivia of all time, all the stuff. This is an important episode to the series, and it's also nigh incomprehensible on your first viewing. I had to go back and rewatch several scenes to sort of click in the whole structure of this one. Mm. Um, but it is really good. Like... Between Patty McGee and the actor playing number two, um, you just get an acting showcase and you're watching two people break each other right in half. And, you know, last week you had mentioned towards the end of the episode um, how fun it would be to have an episode that's just like number two and number six in a room together. Um, uh-huh. Your suggestion of putting a gun in the middle of them was close, but basically they, the gun is the ability to leave. And uh, <laughs> yeah, and, and other, the knife. But, oh, there's also a knife. Yes, and otherwise, uh, that's exactly what we got this episode. So I, I truly, truly enjoyed the hell out of it. What about you? Uh, yeah, I, I, this is this is it. This is the prisoner. You know, when you hear that that Maguin originally conceived of the prisoner as being whatever it was, only six episodes or seven episodes, mm-hmm. and this is one of them. Makes sense. <laughs> and uh, they produced this one sixth. Wow. They yeah, they produced it way way towards the beginning. They produced it right after they made Chimes of Big Ben. Um which is the other episode that features this number 2. Yeah. 
and it just goes to show that the prisoner doesn't really doesn't need to be that long there's there's a lot of stuff that you could cut and you could probably just watch those episodes that Patrick McGowan originally conceived and have a complete experience of what the prisoner is more or less maybe some other episodes subbed in there or something um but it it directly addresses and deals with these ideas of of individualism and you know how a person develops as they get older how they sort of define themselves in contrast with all of the forces that attempt to shape them what it means to live in a society or not conform or not it all of those things are addressed here uh i think uh <laughs> i think that they're addressed in the style of like your friend is in a play yeah and very much so yeah <laughs> you're, they're like come see my play uh like, i want to support my this, friend sure yeah you go to this black box theater and you watch your friend ride around the stage on like a little car pretending that he's in traffic or something yeah um there's a lot of stuff like that in this episode that i think is uh good but if you if you dip out of your suspension of disbelief even an inch it becomes really dorky the way that like abstract experimental theater can be so you really have to come to this episode um with an open mind ready for it to be weird and and ready to just sort of accept what it what it throws at you uh but if you do it raises and addresses i think the most fundamental questions about the show really it's an episode where you give a nice boy ice cream and he turns into a five-year-old and then you feed him and then he kills you. That's like what it's about. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's it. Um, but yeah, I agree. I think it actually goes into the realm of like impressionism with this, with this mm-hmm. episode where it's less about what is happening in front of you and less and more about like what you feel about what's happening in front of you and how you, what you like yeah. perceive about it. Um, so I, I think I, I, I would feel exhausted if we recapped <laughs> this one. We simply cannot. So I'll try to give like a elevator pitch of what happens. And then I think we should just sort of talk about the moments that spoke to us and what we got from them. Yeah. I think that's, that's a great way to do it. Um, so essentially the episode starts where we see this number two. He's the number two from Chimes of Big Ben. He calls number six and he says, hey, why do you care? And number six says, I recognize your voice. And number two says, yeah, I've been here before. I've They brought me back. I'm from the Chimes of Big Ben. Remember that? Great episode. Um, you watch it. Yeah. And it makes sense that they brought this guy back because Chimes of Big Ben was the time where Six got the closest to telling them why he resigned. Mm-hmm. So they were probably like, yeah, Jerry almost did it. So we're going to send Jerry back in there. Which means that they don't kill the number twos when they fail all yeah, the time. Yeah, probably not. They're just retired. Um, yeah, and who knows what that means. So number two is watching. Um, he's watching a clip show episode of The Prisoner. He's watching the previously on montage. And uh, he's like, dang, the only way to crack this guy is degree absolute. And what we learn is degree absolute starts with them essentially reducing number six to a childlike state to a sort of infant state um and then taking him to an underground bunker 
in his jammies with his ice cream. Mm. Uh, and in that underground bunker, they take him through the phases of life. It seems like to discover what is this dude's deal? Like, where did it happen that he became uh, this rebel guy? And how do we how do we get him to have a fondness for society, for authority? How do we get him to be more of a conformist? So number two talks about the seven stages of man speech from Shakespeare. And then we essentially go through more or less the seven stages of man. Um, we see six as an infant, as a schoolboy, as a teen, um, young man, middle-aged, and then by the time we get to the end, what ends up happening is that six at some point gains the upper hand on number two. Mm-hmm. And then actually number two is the one who plays out the sort of final stages of man, the old age, and then the second childishness um, of near death. And eventually it's sort of established at the beginning, like degree absolute, only one of them can leave. And that's because both of them are so cracked open and raw that one of them is going to sort of assert power over the other. And that's, that ends up being number six. Yeah. And number two is unable. He's reduced essentially to a groveling heap, begging number six to tell him why he resigned. And then number two fails. And there's a voice off screen that says, die, die, die. He dies. And then at the end, a a dude comes in. He says, hey, great job, number six. (laughs) You won. Congrats. Uh, What do you want? Number six says, bring me to number one. And the guy says, cool. All right, let's go. That's good. And you're like, this is the first time I've ever seen an honest to goodness cliffhanger on The Prisoner. And I was so like, my, all my body was clenched in this last, these last moments. Yep. Yeah. I think that's a, that's a pretty straight, that covers it. Um, but, and that's all we have to say. So there's nothing else to talk about in this episode. And that's (laughs) it. Bye-bye. Uh, yeah. The the Shakespeare stuff as a framework, I didn't pick up on until probably halfway through the episode. And then I was realizing like, oh, we're, we're doing the stages. We're doing like growing up and all this. Mm -hmm. Um, one other thing that I like about this episode is that it it follows this trend of like, especially in the 60s, like pop psychology and therapy yeah. and the idea that if in order to access somebody's like interiority, you need to like disassemble each major phase of their life and figure out like what went wrong here and like what was your trauma when you were a kid. And in my experience, that's definitely a a like uh subsection of of like uh trauma-based therapy that is less popular now because people realize that yeah. it's kind of nonsense and also um asking somebody in their middle age to like address the anxieties that they had as an infant is a kind of fruitless endeavor because you're just you are in a lot of ways a different person than you were and mm-hmm. even with like drugs and like uh, chemical rebalancing. They can't truly get at like what was six like as a teenager. There's always going to be this level of like him performing it. Um, and it's just not a, yeah, it's not a good way to like get into someone's head. It can also bring up a lot of trauma that you don't need to. Um, and I like that the show understands that. And is like, yeah, this is not like a brilliant tactic, even though it's the last tactic that the village has. Um, I like the term for it. Uh, what was it again? Absolute degree absolute degree absolute not a, a, an invented term if i'm not mistaken correct yeah i looked it up um i think there are like other terms that sound similar to it like a decree absolute as has to do with divorce i think 
Um, but basically it's just, hey, what happens when we when we break you down? Well, when we break you down, we realize that you are more complicated and, and me, the person doing that to you, also have my own like issues, problems with authority and misunderstanding of where I fit into the system, which is what I understood to like kind of break number two with him going like, I think there's that really crucial line towards the end where he says like, where, um, where is number one? And he says, I'm number two. And he's like, who are you? And he, all he can do is identify himself as number two. Like he just can't think of himself as anything other than yeah his identity because he has fully embodied it and doesn't have a personality anymore. It's kind of yeah. sad. I'm I'm going to be doing a lot of leaning on the AV Club review and on Scott Appel's analysis to kind of jumpstart us here. Mm-hmm. And something that the AV Club review really highlights is that part of what's smart about the village picking this particular number two um, to be the one to try and crack six in degree absolute is that number two, this number two in particular is kind of a similar guy to number six. Like he's um, also a sort of individual and rebel, but he's like a failed rebel. Um, he's someone who could have been six or six could be him, and but he gave in, right? And it's really interesting if you read closely their exchanges, they get to this point, the AV club makes the point of like, he's, a number two that's smart enough to ask six, not why did you resign, but why do you care? Um, and that being the sort of way to get to him. Yeah. It's a more useful question. Yeah. And six really divulges to him more than he's said to anybody else. He tells him like for peace of mind, because people knew too much. Um, so this number two gains ground, but then they, they flip it where six can start to tell that, Part I think part of why this number two is so intent on wanting to know is because he wishes that he could be as free as number six is. Yeah. And he he wants to understand, like, how did you do it? How did you how did you reject all these things that I've been buying into? Uh, and six is like, well, why did you accept? Why did you surrender? Why did you do what you did? Um and that that really is what breaks number two down, I think, is seeing someone like Six who chose to not become a tool of the establishment or a tool of the, of the system, realizing that he could have done that if he had been stronger or if he had known better. And um, that ultimately leads to him completely cracking in half and, and dying as a result. And uh, it's a stark like moment too when they're in the like young adult or young man phase, and they're like doing boxing, and then we transition to them fencing. Um, and number six has uh, number two on the back, the back leg, and number two is asking him like, "Try to kill me? Yeah, you are not going to do it, but try to do it." And eventually, the tip of the fencing saber falls off, and he totally has the moment where he he's like, "I could just end this. Like, I could just pierce this guy." And he does it like he does it. He does like strike through number two, but he doesn't kill him. Um, and number two is like, you missed like you weren't you. You probably intentionally missed because you still don't have it in you to like conform or to perform to perform violence in the way that like the, the village is asking of you to. Uh, I think that all even ties back into an episode that most people don't like to talk about, which is uh, living in harmony. Um, mm-hmm. An episode that pushes six to commit violence as 
as uh as much as anyone does um and yeah there's all this stuff about like you know number six uh is a rebel because it makes sense to him and that's the way he always lived his life but he had to have like was that raised into him or did he just like sprout from the womb like that um Mm -hmm. was he a child raised like that or was he um sort of like just innately like that um I like too that the AV Club review mentions that like you can kind of watch this episode as being about number two because we actually even start in his office for a while and we spent most of the yeah. early episode following him. Yeah, uh, it's really his story, I think. Um, yeah, watching he's the one who gets the most like change and evolution. Yeah, it's by the way, it was Scott Appel's video that called him a failed rebel. By the way, not the AV Club review. Oh, okay, okay, it's my mistake. Uh, um, yeah, I definitely felt like. In a way, number six isn't really the protagonist of this episode because he doesn't have an arc. He, because he's just been an individual the whole time. I think that is kind of what is confused or not that strong about The Prisoner as a show is that it's a show about becoming an individual, but its protagonist is like the strongest individual ever, you know? Already is and always has been an individual, right? And so he, he's constantly resistant and defiant and ultimately triumphant in a way where it's like, yeah, okay, where did he, where did he fail? We've seen him maybe slip a little bit a couple times, but I don't know that I could really explain his arc or his growth beyond like he gets more Mm self-assured, you know? And whereas, And so in this episode, he's going from like, they hacked his brain and made him a baby to, oh, he grew back up and became the same guy. Um, Whereas number two has this whole arc of like feeling, believing very strongly that like, he doesn't want to be a tool of whoever number one is. He feels uh, imprisoned himself and he, he sort of wants to rebel against that. But he believes that like, you got to grow up sometime and you have to conform to the system. And he takes this whole arc where eventually he sees, Oh, that's not the case. And all of the sort of protection and comfort that I thought I got from, from selling out or from being a part of this society, you know, actually didn't save me in the end. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, Yeah. There's so much, there's so much like to, to that, that supports all of those different reads. I mean, one of the funniest shots, but also one of the, I think most like symbolically rich shots is is right at the beginning, um, like before we're even in the bunker. We we have we're in number two's office and he's not there, but the rover is like comfortably parked in his chair, <laughs> which is so. It really gave me like a kind of whiplash you don't get very often in television because on one hand you're like, oh, that's funny. Like the rover is just chilling in his chair, like he stole the chair or something as a character. But then you're like, wait is the chair designed for the rover because it's spherical and it's exactly yeah. rover shaped. Uh-huh. And it kind of makes it you go like, fits right in. was all of this like modernist mod art style, like very intentional. And we're just missing like, what was the correct usage of all of it? Like that chair is not for people. Mm. It's for the rover. Like, uh. Yeah. The phone is, is shaped that way. Cause it fits on the curve of the rover. Is that what we're saying? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's why. And that's why there's all the different colored phones. Um, yeah. And then this episode definitely gave me vibes of a lot of other, 
like late series surrealist television. Um, I know you had mentioned Twin Peaks in your notes. How like yeah, it feels peaksy a little bit. To, uh, like season two of Twin Peaks for people without any spoilers, of course. Uh, like spends a lot of time getting away from its main mystery and just exploring characters and like unrelated side arcs. Um, and then right at the very end, fully becomes about its main story. And yeah, and, it's like okay, let's bring Bob back. Let's do the Twin Peaks stuff again. Yeah, everything. For, forget here. about going on a motorcycle journey or whatever. That was just us wasting time. Yeah. And now we're going to be Twin Peaks again. Yeah. And this this episode definitely feels like that. It's not surprising to me at all that this is Patrick McGowan's favorite episode. He said in a couple interviews that this was his favorite. Mm-hmm. But also at the exact same time, he originally wrote this script under a pseudonym because he didn't want to be mocked for the script. He said people would think it was too weird and think it was absurd, which is correct. But that's fine. And that's a good thing. Yeah, yeah right. Um, cause I can imagine writing one of these things and being like, there you go. I did it. I made a cohesive whole, like you kind of like get so invested in your own narrative and then realize that you, people have to watch this and you have to film this and you're <laughs> like, um, all right guys. So bear with me. Uh, we're going to start the Rover inside of this, the chair and then we're going to get a thousand times weirder from there. And by the end, uh, number two is going to be the first dead number two on screen. There's going to be blood for the first time. Uh, we're going to have number six be a baby for half the episode. It's going to be great um give me money to film this <laughs> hmm. um yeah I, th- that fencing scene i think is one of if not the first time we've seen blood and it's kind of fun to think about like again in comparison to james bond that um that's a series that went from like occasionally like cartoonish violence to a lot of on-screen violence in the modern era and the prisoner has like never really shown explicit violence other than like the rover suffocating people or people drowning or people falling like no no like blood or gore ever and the very first time we see blood it's like oh and it's number six who draws blood yeah um similar like last week i was talking about the first time someone brings a gun into a tv show um we it makes a big difference Mm -hmm. uh and around the sort of like edges of this episode i think again not enough um praise can be go to the goat himself angelo muscott who <laughs> I just can't even imagine what they tell him to do on set where they're like, all right, Angelo, we got you in the usual butler outfit. However, we need you to hold this rattle and number six is going to steal it from you because he's a one-year-old and you're going to be fine with that. But then you're going to be blindfolded for the rest of the episode. And when number six wins, you're, he, you work for him now. <laughs> that was such an awesome moment. <laughs> number two is so like, sad. look, he thinks you're the boss now. <laughs> Oh man, that was he great. thinks you're people. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. He's just so he he brings this like almost stoic level of like this is my job. This is all so weird, but this is my job. I can't. <laughs> Why would I ever say anything? Yeah, and it drives home that he doesn't work for number two. Right? No, he, he just... works. He works for the village, and he has this fixed role in in the grand scheme of things. Yeah, like the classic. Um, like uh any of those like servant roles in in series is like do they work for the house or do they work for the inhabitants of the house well they usually work for the house so whoever's there is the boss not the people it's just yeah. whatever is in the service of the greater good yeah um a lot of other stuff i mean there's just a lot of great lines across the board um is there any other like big questions that you wanted to crack into in this episode um, there's sort of the like psychoanalysis Jungian read of this episode mm. that I got from Scott Appel that I can dig into. Yeah, go um, for it. And then we can go from there, I guess. Mm-hmm. So 
Scott Appel kind of forwards to, in his video, uh, forwards sort of two um, psychological ideas here mm-hmm. that you can use to think about this episode. The first is the idea of transference and counter-transference in psychotherapy where, and again, like these are concepts where it's maybe they're coming from Jung or something and they're all just BS. I don't know. Cause I'm not, I'm not a psychologist or a psychiatrist. Mm-hmm. Um, but the idea of transference being like a patient can sort of draw on the psychological strengths of their doctor or their caretaker or whoever to be used as a kind of crutch as they rebuild and become healthier. But counter-transference is, you know, the opposite where the the weaknesses or whatever the case may be of the patient affect and unravel the doctor. Mm-hmm. And he's sort of saying that in this episode that, you know, number two and number six, it's an example of counter-transference where six's uh, sort of rebelliousness unravels number two as opposed to it going the other way. Um And then the kind of the big thing he also talks about in terms of the hero's journey, how this whole show is a hero's journey thing. And, uh, and the village is like the place with all the monsters that the hero goes to. And, you know, you can put that structure on it and read that as well. And then in the hero's journey, Scott Appel sort of says like, there's a valuable prize to be had in in Campbell's hero's journey, but what exactly is Six's prize? I don't know. It's an open question. And then the uh, the big Jungian thing here is this process called individuation, where it's the process by which somebody becomes a fully realized individual, mm-hmm. basically. Uh, and you can read this episode, and actually the several episodes in the back half of the season as a process by which six is individuating Um, and he's sort of coming into conflict with all of these different things, these different Jungian concepts um, along the way. Things like uh, part of individuation is the deconstruction of the persona, which is the social mask that you present to the world. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. And so that I think we've actually talked in, in not in those exact terms, but we've, addressed how that is an aspect of of the prisoner six kind of breaking down his whole gruff guy vibe and um how that can be a kind of unnerving or chaotic experience at first um confrontation with uh the shadow (laughs) it's like your the unconscious parts of your personality um and so you know maybe number two is his shadow Um, there's also an archetype of the wise old man. So maybe that's who number two is, who knows? Um, and he even does a Jungian read of the girl who was death, that there's a concept called the anima and that's like the the, the feminine qualities Mm -hmm. of the man. Uh, and Mm -hmm. it has to do with the, right, right. That's what, (laughs) that's what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. Um, and it has to do with sort of like the relationships that, that the man forms with woman, women in his life. And so maybe the girl who was death is Six's anima and he's confronting it and whatever. So there's like this whole 
Jungian thing that you could do. I don't know what that really adds to the experience of watching the show, except saying like, look, we, we did it. We did the Jung thing where he's becoming an individual. Um, but that's at least a lens through which you can view and understand this show as like, um, you know, there's a process by which you become a fully realized person. But, you know, I don't know if, if the prisoner is really doing that because it feels like number six is a fully realized person. And then he's just sort of coming into conflict with these things. And I don't see him growing or changing in the way that I would expect someone in a, on a journey like that to grow or change. So that's, that's my issue with the, with the Jungian read. Well, I think uh, what works so well about the prisoner is like, you know, as in the scope of this show, what we're able to do is look at the different lenses um, with which critics can like analyze and a work and choose which one makes the most sense to which, which one we feel the most confident about and which one we can like convey to the listener and like in an interesting way about. Uh, and like, I personally don't find the psychological stuff that you're talking about um, to be my, my field of expertise. So I can like defer to someone and realize that like, yeah, that's totally a read you can have. And that's great. And makes a lot of sense. And in some ways connects, but it doesn't feel like the read of the show that, that fits the way I think about it a lot. Um, for me, like a lot, like I was saying, a lot of my notes in this one are about the influence of this episode on future television, uh, what this says about like the production cycle of the prisoner that like between this and the girl who is deaf, like, you know, this is not a show that is trying to be one long continuous story. It's a show with a lot of breaks and uh, mm -hmm. weird one-off stories. Um, or maybe even like what the performances kind of convey. Because um, there's some trivia, I think, also about how both Patrick McGowan and Leo Mc McKern, I believe, who plays number yep. two. Um, and there's a lot of like mixed stuff about this and we can't speak with that much authority on it. But it seems like they both got like heavily heavily invested in these performances in this episode um to the point where like bordering on psychotic breakdowns and leo mckern may have either had a breakdown or a heart attack or a heart attack yeah in the filming and like as soon as you know that you watch the back half of this episode where he's sweating and like his eyes are like rolling around so much you like genuinely feel like this guy might pat like just real life pass out any moment yeah it's yeah. it's actually very intense it's disturbing yeah and it, it definitely detracts from my enjoyment of the episode, I think, knowing yeah. that it had that effect on them. Like when you read about how Heath Ledger, <laughs> uh, when he was playing the Joker, became kind of unstable or whatever. And it's like, well, I don't really want that. <laughs> I yeah, don't, don't want to. Method acting is a difficult thing. Happens. I think it's especially, a very, it's super duper common with like men in Hollywood of being like, uh, Christian Bale lost 100 pounds for this role and gained them all back in the next one. It's like, that's sort of like, playing with your body and your mind that you can do in while inhabiting a role may bring a sort of like level of quality of some sort to the role but is not ultimate like you're still i need you need to accept that you're making a thing that will finish and you will move beyond it mm -hmm. um so yeah it, it does really bum me out when i hear that like these people got so into this that they hurt themselves that's like no that's not yeah. something i support or whatever um yeah. Even though, again, it's like a, such an intense episode, but I think it were it would work even if they were just performing it. Because you mentioned too, like this is almost an episode that you could have just watched as a play. Um, yeah, it has that quality to it, right? Like if you if you set up this whole bunker set 
and just put all of the placings around and have them move around it and then lay the jail cell out somewhere in a corner, then you have this whole, you can make this whole episode on, on a stage, I think. Um, yeah. But ultimately, it's a great exercise in, like, understanding what the whole show is about, um, kind of, like, moving this mystery forward and also, uh, yeah, examining, like, what this episode does to the rest of the series. Um, I think we're going to have to talk a lot next time about like episode order and stuff, but we know that this episode leads into the next one. It's as much of a cliffhanger as we're ever going to get without a literal to be continued. Right. Right. So I'm excited to see how the prisoner wraps up. But at this point, knowing that this is where we're at, I don't expect it to be like number six fights. Number one on a light on a rooftop and then like flies away in a helicopter. Like it will not be that (laughs) a 0% chance. It'll probably be way weirder and sad and emotional than that. Yeah. I mean, I, I, from what everything that I have read, uh, fallout is just insane. Yes. That's (laughs) what I love. It's super crazy. My last stray note here before we, we get to the other last couple things is, um, you know, talking about chats, if people have been following around with us for a while, uh, the last season we did Babylon five, um, a show heavily inspired, according to its creator, by The Prisoner, um, to the point where there's an episode in season two of that show called uh, Come the Inquisitor, which uh-huh. is ostensibly a, like a nod to this, to Once Upon a Time. It features a character, Delenn, being interrogated by a man known as the Inquisitor and kind of breaking her down and asking her to like go down her whole life story and be like, why, are you, why did you, where was the point where you became the way you are and all that. Um, and is even filmed and like cut the way this one is very rapid, like back and forth, repetitive cuts. Um, it makes me want to re- go, go back and rewatch that episode. But as we had been discussing before we got on mic, like th- Battle of Five just is one of those shows where like it's either on streaming services or it'll never, it's not. And you're just like, well, I need to find a consistent way to watch this show. But it's a good show. And if people haven't watched it and they like The Prisoner, I actually recommend you go back and check out at least Come the Inquisitor. And if not the rest of the show, it's a really good work i think yeah definitely um it's it's comparing to that scene i mean for people who've seen battle on five come the inquisitor it's really like a brainwashing scene uh when you once you take the entire spoilers for battle on five but once you take the entirety of battle on five into consideration it's the scene where delenn and sheridan are being sort of assessed by an agent of the vorlons to see if they're fit for the vorlons mission but it's really about like <laughs> sort of um, making it clear to them that they need to put everything on the line for the sake of the Vorlons. Yeah. And the Vorlons whole thing is about like conformity. It's the same as, as what number two is saying, really. Like you live in a society, you have a role, you fulfill your role, and that's mm-hmm. what you're supposed to do. Um, so it's putting the two scenes or the two episodes side by side in, in Babylon five, Delenn and Sheridan emerge having said like, you know what? You're right. <laughs> we, yeah. That is how it works. And number six emerges from this saying, no, screw that. Screw you. Take me to your boss. Yeah. Take me to your boss. Take, let me see the manager. I'm doing my own thing. Mm-hmm. Um, which, but then Babylon five yeah. eventually can, has enough of a scale that it can zoom back around and be like, actually, Right. everyone's wrong like they get to become number six event but it doesn't happen in right. this episode it happens like two seasons from then right um yeah it's it's a great it's a great comparison or companion piece i'm actually really glad 
to have watched these shows in succession because uh you know i talk about lost comparisons a lot but B- b5 definitely pulled a lot of concepts from the prisoner mm-hmm. um i mean it has like a prisoner um or like a interrogation torture scene episode it has um if things named after this is a character who literally does the bc and usually like it's all there you know james the creator of that show is a huge prisoner fan um and you love to see it yeah magellan let's kick this episode into overdrive what other notes do you have about this <laughs> wonderful episode of the prisoner um yeah i've got a i've got a bunch so let's see if i can kind of go through from beginning to end here um I liked, so we didn't talk about at the beginning of this episode, Six is kind of like unhinged with the other villagers, and he's just asking um, random questions to the people that he runs into, like grabbing people by the scruff of their collars and asking what number they are. And then uh, this one guy is like, don't do that. And Six says, what? And the guy says, inquire. Uh, and then he's like, what number are you? One, two, three, four. No, stop. Five, Stop! six, seven, no! eight. <laughs> it reminded me of um, just the raw energy and power of of uh, the scene from Vampire's Kiss yeah, when yeah, Nicolas yeah. Cage yep. does the alphabet. <laughs> Thinking of the exact same thing as you were doing it. <laughs> ABC! Um, it's awesome. Yeah. People should watch that scene if they haven't seen that scene. It's a I haven't seen that movie, but I've seen that scene. It's busted, dude. It's bussy. The movie's busted? Yeah, it's very bussy. Is he a vampire in that movie? Uh, I can't tell you. Okay. But that's a plot point of the movie. Okay. Is it commentary chatsable or no? Uh, maybe. Yeah, maybe. All right. Well, we should get some Cage in the mix. Yeah, we're surprisingly Cajun. not. Despite doing the like 90s and aughts, like weird, sometimes bad action movies, we've only done one Nicolas Cage movie so far. And it was our best, our best film. True. True and truth. Wait, was that the one that won? Yeah, face off one in our oh bracket. Oh God, come on! Mm-hmm. Has it deserved again. to? That's no, correct. We got to do it again. Shallon Soccer deserved better. Go on, talk about the prisoner. <laughs> uh, so let's see. Um, I was really intrigued by. It's it, still trying to figure out what the village wants with six, and the beginning of the episode seems to make clear that what they want is for him to work for them. Information, yeah, but they don't. Again, I think we've said this before, but like they don't want to actually know the information because he tells number two again in this episode the answer to the question, and number two continues to ask after he's answered the question. Mm -hmm. He says, "I wanted peace of mind. Uh, Obviously, I didn't want to be a spy anymore." And uh, it seems like they just they want to fully break him because number two says at the beginning when he's on the phone with presumably number one, I'm a good man. I was a good man. But if you get him, he will be better. Yeah. And he's just so committed to the authority of the village that he's willing to completely sacrifice himself because he knows that number six would be a better number two than him. And if the village can crack him and get him, then they can crack anybody. What I'm saying, speaking of number two being really good at uh, number six being good at all this, is ultimately if number one isn't played by Patrick McGowan, then I'm I'm checking out. I want it to be like I want it to be like the the the, the duplicates episode where he's like, finally number one, and it's just a mirror, and he's like, it's you, I knew it all along, and then he breaks the mirror, and it's Angelo Muscon. <laughs> 
Sorry. <laughs> it, it was actually me. Hello. Sorry to fool you. He finally talks, yeah. Yeah. What do you think Angel Muscat sounds like? Um, I was wondering if it was him. When he was saying, kill yourself or saying, die. Yeah, die. I thought maybe I thought that was, was his voice. I think it was implied that it was number one or God, maybe. Maybe there's a big Yeah, it was six crit. at first, I think. And then yes. it sort of morphed and sounded like it was somebody else. And I thought it was Angela Muscat. I really uh, that works for me. It's unclear. There were a couple of moments where I had like laughs or chuckles. Yep. Um, one of them was when number two asked six if he wants to go walkies. And then he gets up with the biggest shit-eating grin in the world. Uh, and it's honestly the most scared that I've been <laughs> in this show. You want to go uh, walkies? No. Yeah, and he's like, yeah. Um, I loved the shot where Angela Muscat is descended into the hole in the floor so he can get to the basement room before them. <laughs> it's just like this slow, like... <laughs> When mom says it's 30 minutes until dinner, so I go downstairs to play more Xbox. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the chalkboard moment where number two writes his plan <laughs> to a, to a, a almost catatonic number six. Yeah. Uh, he says, okay, part A, find the missing link, which, what does that mean? Part B, put it together, which, what does that mean? What does that mean? And part C, bang. Now that I understand, <laughs> finally. Yeah, now you're talking. Now you're speaking my language. Uh, also, A, B, and C, right? Huh? Oh, snap. Maybe that's um, connected somehow. Or maybe it's not. The show is imparsable, and I love that about mm-hmm. it. And then I had a big laugh at um, when they're boxing, and he's like speaking to number six and putting him in the scenario of the boxing. And he says, uh, oh, what does he say? Oh, he says, you're the champ, boy. <laughs> you're the champ. Uh, yeah. You're going to be the a part star where Six someday. is driving around the little, the little like toy car and Angela Muscat is the crossing guard police guy. Oh, that so good. Cool. The best that role play. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. There was a moment there where I, where he, like they fight. He's like, I don't agree with you, and then he like rides away on the scooter, and I was like, that's so, <laughs> that's like me at five years old, being like, Mom, I don't want to put my toys away. I'm gonna go away and grow to fairy tale land, <laughs> like riding my, <laughs> my 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 trike away. There's an iconic Allen photo hung up in my fri- on the fridge in this room actually of me riding away on a trike. It's pretty good, baby Allen. Kind of the number two of the Allen household of my my household. Number six, rather, not number two. Why do I? You know what's funny is I'm getting them mixed up. It's almost like they're the same in this episode, huh? <laughs> That's pretty trippy. Yeah, you're tripping me out. Okay. Uh, there's a part where they're like pop, 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 one, two, three, five, pop, pop, and it's yeah. like a really bad improv exercise yeah. or something. They're just whiffing the, the 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 game the whole time. And then uh, number two says protect other something, and number six is like protect other pop. Pop, 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 <laughs> protect other pop. <laughs> it's so funny. Uh, yeah, even in its even in its most twisted and darkly psychological, the prisoner still is is a very silly show. Um, I like that six never says the number. He never says six early on in the episode until he until the very end. Um, yeah, he's like he's like uh, number two is like say the even numbers in sequence, and he's like two, four. Uh, he's like say it six eight ten six and then eight you're six and he's like two 
four. Uh, <laughs> it's just it's hmm. every fiber of his being doesn't want to say his number. Um, I loved that. There's another perfect like it's funny and also uh, relates to the theme of the episode of not wanting to be like identified and stuff. Yeah. Uh, and then another laugh I had was when six says I'm hungry and then number two says for what? And six says supper. Supper. Look with a pause too. <laughs> like he's going to say something really wise and then he just goes supper and you're like, Oh yeah. Um, and the, the way that they kind of transition between um, the different phases is just a camera cut. So, you know, he'll be a baby in one scene and then cut and they'll be like, oh, it's time for dinner. Let's eat dinner together. <laughs> what did you make today? And now they're young adults together. It's great. I loved it. Um, let's see. What else I had? I had some other stuff. I thought it was telling in the boxing or in the telling. fencing. In the, yeah, in the fencing part where he goads six into killing him with the sword yeah and then he six misses and two says you missed the you missed boy you still can't do it and six says i'm sorry uh two says sorry you're sorry for everybody is that why you resigned which makes me think that maybe the reason he resigned is because he was like told to kill someone and he couldn't do it or something like i felt bad about it yeah maybe yeah yeah are you really interested you're not interested in finding out why he resigned though are you um no i think i'm interested in it in a sort of abstract sense of like Mm -hmm. what is what are the values that led him to doing that like i don't think there's an answer like oh the russians bribed him or something or anything like that yeah um i think this idea of like he was became guilty about killing people is is an interesting one uh and has some weight to it that seems backed up by living in harmony in this episode. So at that level of specificity, I'm interested, but beyond that, not it. I don't think it's a question that has an answer. I think it's a question worth discussing and interpreting and, and thinking about like, what is it that would cause someone to resist and sort of check out of their role in society? Um, And the answer I think is when you sort of feel like you're complacent or complicit in harm that's done to other people intentional or not right it's sort of like the ones who walk away from omelas kind of thing right exactly i'm always referencing the ones who walk away from omelas that's a classic story that's a great one Mm -hmm. um there's this whole thing about how six i guess was a pow captured by the germans and then two starts speaking german to him yeah that was the thing i was like looking all over for translations of that there was nothing though uh yeah i don't I don't speak German, so I don't know what they were saying. German speakers out there, let us know. What did they say? What's going on? What's he saying? Because that was just real German. It's not like um, the characters from the other episode where they're just speaking a, a vague foreign language. Um, they're Like he's speaking theoretically translatable German. Um, but yeah. It's good yeah. stuff. What else you got, homie? Um, homie Simpson. Let's see. Homie Simpson. Sorry. Uh, some stuff up from the wiki. So we talked about McKern having a heart attack. Mm-hmm. Uh, initially, this was conceived as the first part of a, or not the first part, but the final episode of a, like a first season of a two season show. Oh. But then after they renegotiated down to 17 episodes, 
they sort of re refilmed the very end and it became the first half of the two part se- uh, series finale. So yeah, it's sort of like um how Babylon 5 season 4 ends with Sheridan being totally broken in the yeah. interrogation episode intersections in real time. There's there's reads on that show that it, they, or it could have ended the the creator originally wanted it to end much sooner in another like very sad tragic episode or like they filmed an ending while doing season 4 and then made a whole other season and then used the ending that was filmed a year earlier. We yeah, should, we right. should probably we should watch Babylon Five. I feel like for so it's a good show. I think I think it's worth. It seems chatting. chatting. Yeah. Um, let's see. I have some other stuff. The wiki makes a point about how Six's characterization at the beginning of the episode seems weird that he's so frantic because he's been kind of like self assured and gaining more confidence over the past few episodes. So I don't really know how to square that. I but... disagree with that read because I think. That the version of Six that makes the more the most sense is the one who changes up his like personality all the time just to like keep people on their toes. Fair, definitely true. Like a lot of the shit about continuity on the internet is like, oh, you can watch Six get more less and less complacent, and it's like it actually makes plenty of sense for him to like one day be really used to things and the next day to be fully unhinged, because that's how people often work. And he's trying to confuse people and not make it seem like he's following any predictable sort of arc. Hmm. that's my take yeah he's he's just kind of trying to throw them off yeah uh yeah and i think that makes more sense yeah. so i'll go yeah. with that um let's see if there's any more scott appell stuff he just kind of talks about this union stuff i really think people should watch those scott appell videos they're they're pretty awesome i'll put a link in the description thank you thank you thank you and then there's this this thread in the AV Club review that I'm curious about your thoughts on, where this is the last thing I have, where uh, it seems like Magoon is sort of anti-therapy a little bit because he's using the trappings of therapy as a framework for this episode and then demonstrating six like overcoming the therapist figure Mm. and seeing the therapist figure as a kind of person who conforms you to society just like the teach there's a whole again like school is makes people conform kind of part um so i was wondering what you thought of that like did you feel that from this episode that it was like kind of anti-therapy what I thought is that it's more showing the negative of this type of therapy because both yeah. and and the negative of like the the, the traditional story trope of uh, the patient like overcomes the therapist like both of those are super fraught because it implies that the patient has malicious intent and the whole therapy thing is like this is not a uh, effective form of therapy this like opening up your past and like digging out your wounds and stuff <laughs> again like I said earlier just leads to more trauma than not and I mm-hmm. sort of think that. Magoon and company understood that uh, and wanted to be like, hey, like this is a bad way to assess someone. You should know that, even though people in the 60s might have not all known that. That wasn't as like uh, well understood. Yeah. That's my take. And yeah, I'm sticking good. to it. <laughs> um, and then, uh, yeah, just and then the school thing. 
I like the line where he said, I'm a fool, but I'm not a rat. Um, sort of encapsulates Six's character pretty well, I think. That yeah. he's got this foolish devotion to individualism, but there's a kind of pride or honor in it. He even says uh, it's honor. And uh, yeah, I think that just tells us more about who he is and what he values and, and all that. But Pretty, pretty dateable dude. Pretty dateable, yeah. Pretty handsome. Pretty handsome. Pretty handsome. Huh. You make you bring up some good points here, Maj. Maj. Cool. Well, I think we fully disassembled these these uh this this intimate interactions between a broken man and his real dad, which is what it's my alternate <laughs> title for this episode. It says here in the trivia, this episode was also almost called uh, "A Broken Man and His Real True Dad Who Exists." Um, <laughs> I think "Once Upon a Time" is not a good title for this episode. Yeah, it's a better title for the last one. They originally one of the working titles was Degree Absolute, which I think is a much better title. Uh, it's a little one. on the nose that once he's like initiate Degree Absolute, you're like, oh, that's the thing. <laughs> yeah, but it's like, yeah, that is the thing. But I like but that. I like it. When I it like it too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm a fan. They say that GM needs to be a fan of their own players. The podcaster needs to be a fan of their own TV show that they're watching. Yeah. Is that? Does that? Make sense? <laughs> Is that true? <laughs> cool. Rock and roll. Well, Magellan, we're going to rock and roll next week into the final episode of 1967's The Prisoner. Isn't that exciting? Yeah, we're we're barreling forward. We're nearly done with this this beautiful little gem of a show. It's nice to do these kind of short shows. Uh, That's what I'm saying, Barbo. Put them in the bank. Put them in the tank, and then and then they're done dive into the themes, crunch into all the metaphors and stuff, and then throw them in the trash behind us. Yeah. The um, final episode of The Prisoner. I'm going to I'm going can I flip the script and read this one? Okay, yeah. Please. Please. The final episode of uh I want to you want to say like ABC's The Prisoner. Like I really want to I want to give it like a longer title. <laughs> the final episode of The Prisoner is called Fallout. Here's what happens in it. After witnessing the trials of number two and number 48 and meeting the president of the assembly, number six escapes during the chaos that follows. Oh, fuck. So he's getting off the island. Cool. This well. every fans. He had Patrick McGowan had to go into hiding because of the, the next episode, guys. That's great. He I'm like could not excited. go into society for a while because people were angry. Whether or not that's because it's so good <laughs> or because it's. Bonk, I don't know. And you said it's one of the most bonkers episodes ever, too. So everything I've seen, yeah. Um, and this is timely because uh, we're not only doing that; we're also gonna get a little bit of background info on the prisoner via a short documentary that is available on yeah. Amazon Prime. So Amazon Prime has a documentary about the making of the prisoner called "In My Mind." Um, it's on Prime Video, just like the prisoner is. So you can watch both over there. Uh, it was made in 2017. And uh, the description is as follows. A feature documentary by award-winning filmmaker Chris Rodley, in my mind, has made was made to celebrate the 50th anniversary of enigmatic 1960s TV series The Prisoner, featuring a series of frank archive interviews with creator Patrick McGowan, new interviews with his daughter Catherine, and never-before-seen archive footage. This is the definitive story of The Prisoner as told by its creator. Uh, so yeah, we're gonna watch the finale. We'll watch in my mind, and then we're gonna talk 
like essential, non-essential episodes, what order we think is the best order, that kind of stuff. Yeah. It should be worth noting that um, this episode will be releasing on May 17th. And um, in my mind, we'll be leaving Amazon Prime on May 21st. So Yeah, you only have a few days to catch that uh, before it's gone. I can, of course, like post, post, uh, like on the Twitter, like, hey, by the end of this, we're going to be watching In My Mind. So check it out if you can. Otherwise, I don't know where else it'll be available. I don't think it's like an Amazon exclusive or something, but you should be able to find it otherwise. Yeah. Um, but yeah. yeah. We're finding the prisoner. We're going to see what's going to happen to Six. He's going to get off the island, maybe. He's going to be free, maybe. And we're going to find out that it was all a big game show hosted by a guy that happens to look suspiciously silly, just like Patty. It was all a big birthday present. Oh, God. <laughs> 17 episodes of the game would destroy me. I, wa- uh, I watched, I was, I've been watching Comedy Bang Bang, the, the TV show. And um, there's this great gag at the beginning of one of the episodes where Reggie Watts and Scott Ackerman are talking. And Reggie Watts is like, Scott, did you watch the game last night? And then Scott Ackerman's like, yeah, Michael Douglas is so good in that. <laughs> <laughs> I just because I can hear it in Scott Ackerman's perfect delivery. <laughs> yeah, it's really funny. Um, is that your chat sim for this week, Magellan? No, it's not my chat sim, but uh, it gets us into the the closing closing zone of the of the episode here. Closing if I can take us into zone. It. One last call for plugs, and now it's time the to talk about the emails. Plugs. Great. Uh, so you can get in touch with the show in a number of ways. You can email us, chatspot at gmail.com. You can uh, follow us and message us on Twitter at chatspod. And both of those are spelled C-H-A-T-Z-P-O-D. You can also go ahead and voice your uh, love of the show on iTunes. Uh, we appreciate reviews of any stripe and uh, your feedback on the show. You can support us on Patreon, and we would love for you to do that, patreon.com slash chatspod. You can support at a dollar, and a dollar will get you access to our thanks, <laughs> as well as any uh, bonus things we decide to do on the Patreon. So right now I'm doing a watch of uh, X-Files, a solo watch called The Chats Files, which is available to all patrons, um, and any other things that we feel like making that um any other things we feel like making that tier we'll do in the future. Uh, the for certain content is at $3 a month where every month we will put out three bonus episodes that you will vote on. So we're in May, uh, which means we've done a commentary chats on sky high. We're piloting pride and prejudice. And then at the end of the month, we'll be doing a commentary chats on a night's tale. Uh, and then finally you can support us at $5 just because you love us and cause you want to, uh, and maybe some special thanks will come your way in the not so distant future. Who knows? Um, but yeah, that's, that's the plugs. Wow. At the end of every episode, we also share a little something, a little snack, a little treat for you to munch on between now and next time. So Alan, what is your chatsum for this week? Uh, my chatsum for this week is not Alan Twitty, the side character to uh, Shia LaBeouf's character in the kids' Disney television show, Even Stevens. But do look up a picture of him because he's a very charming boy and his kind of look embodies the 2000s, that sort of like style and aesthetic that we love mm-hmm. here on Chats. I was just thinking about even Stevens recently in terms of like kids' sitcoms that I really enjoyed, like That's So Raven and Phil from the Future and uh, 
that's it. I can't think of another one right now. But those are my chatsome, folks. What is my chatsome is a wonderful little festival that happened over the internet uh, on May 9th, uh, 2020. Primarily, I don't know if it still went into the 10th, but uh, it's called Secret Sky. And I know not a lot of people out there are are into EDM the way that I am. And I'm even I'm like kind of a, a budding fan, sort of a nubile fan. Um, but Secret Sky is a, a it's a weekend long music festival being hosted on YouTube. Um, and they've been doing a lot of other stuff like this since, um, like since quarantine started because uh, EDM fans need something to do drugs to and also to dance to, to like realistically. And Secret Sky has just been amazing because not only are they doing like live stuff on YouTube, like performances and unique sets that have never been done before, but also, uh, they have a website set up. I don't know what the actual URL is, but it's really easy to Google just look up Secret Sky. Um, it's like a visualizer that you can walk around um, while the sets are going on. So it's not exactly a VR space. I think there is a version of it that you can do in VR, but you can just like pan your mouse around and be like, okay, over there is Porter Robinson like doing a little B mashup. And in front of me is like a kaleidoscope of colors and sounds and shapes. And it's it's really trippy and a really cool use of the medium. And, you know, in this time when we're all trying to find some way to connect and, and like be around other people and experience social gatherings, it's nice to see groups like Secret Sky and other things doing these sort of like get togethers via the internet. I love it a lot. And I think it's worth checking yeah, out. That's great. What about you, Megan? Uh, so I would tell Megan sometimes. Sorry, I gave him like different names. If that wasn't clear <laughs> right now, it's just, it's a thing I do. So one of the um, ideas that we'd had on a couple polls on the Patreon uh, was something that didn't get a, a, too many votes, so I just went ahead and did it myself, which is doing a whole watch of the Dana Carvey show and then watching the documentary about the Dana Carvey show that Hulu put out recently called um, Too Funny to Fail. And and um, it's just really, it's a really interesting story because the Dana Carvey show is is all of these bright, funny minds in comedy who would come to dominate the following decades basically um creating a show that flopped almost instantly yeah and uh you can kind of follow it's a really interesting experience to watch the show and be like this is pretty funny there's nothing (laughs) that would make this not fly today what was the issue and then to see all of the context in the documentary afterwards about how it was on at 9 30 on abc and uh dana carvey is like breastfeeding uh puppies when people just want him to do church lady and uh yeah it's just this kind of side story in comedy uh and in sketch tv history that i think is fascinating and the show's really funny a lot of it holds up some of it doesn't some of it's pretty bad <laughs> um but some of it's really sharp and ahead of its time and uh, I highly, highly recommend doing that experience of watching the Dana Carvey show and then watching the documentary. And that's all on Hulu. Uh, yeah, it's all all on Hulu. Yeah, fabulous. Yeah, I um, especially the documentary part of that sounds super fascinating from the perspective like we talked about in I think part two of this episode of like how does the how do these shows get made. And like what determines a show's success or not? Like often it has nothing to do with the quality of the show. It's just like it aired at a bad time, right? Um, we've talked about many a canceled show between this and in one of our Patreon shows, Pilot Chats, about like, wait, this was good. Why didn't people watch this? And it was canceled because, yeah, it just was broadcast at a shitty time. Like what are you supposed to do? Uh, 
we've now chatted it multiple times, but there was a comment on a recent episode of the podcast Fake Doctors, Real Friends, where they were like, one of the things that the network was telling them with Scrubs, it's a podcast hosted by the, the co-stars of Scrubs, um, was that that show came on like after Friends and they like the network wanted them to retain like 80 something percent of the people who are watching friends and they're like literally no show can do that that's not fair right that's just impossible <laughs> it's the biggest show ever <laughs> so every yeah. time i i read about like tv history especially in the 90s and 2000s um of like how do these shows get made and like what makes one do well or not it's like everything ha- goes back to friends uh because friends is just the nucleus of of television of the time it's a it's a truly fascinating phenomenon. So yeah, check that stuff out. And yeah, thank you to everybody for listening. Thank you to Magellan for being the rock to my hard place. And thank you for listening to this episode of Prisoner Chats. Be seeing you.